When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-22 Optimus On one side of the coin was a profile of the emperor, the only image most of his subjects would ever see. A man of middle age with a stern Roman bearing, and little to distinguish him from his predecessors. The reverse was more interesting. The inscription read, SPQR Optimo Principi, the best ruler, reflecting the title recently bestowed by the senate and people of Rome. It was a bold assertion less than a decade into his reign, and one that might tempt some rulers to quit while they're ahead. But from everything Silas had heard of Trajan, the new emperor was just warming up. In 106 AD, Gaius Julius Fabius Sampsigerimus III Silas, Silas for short, was 33 years old, and had served as high priest of Ela Gabal for as long as he could remember. Silas had lived the majority of his life under the Flavians, first Vespasian, then Titus, and finally Domitian. Though his memory had officially been consigned to oblivion, Domitian's long rule of fifteen years had been the most prominent. In the East, it was recalled as a time of peace and prosperity, only occasionally troubled by Parthian intrigues. In 80 AD, Vologases's brother Pacorus II had taken the Parthian throne from Vologases's son, Vologases II. Pacorus had then spent the better part of a decade opposing a rival claimant named Artabanus IV, possibly a son of Artabanus III. In the end, Pacorus had outlasted Artabanus before finally passing away in 105 AD. In typical Parthian fashion, two relatives had claimed the throne. Pacorus's brother Osroes and Vologases's grandson Vologases III. The rival monarchs had quickly set about building alliances in preparation for a long and bitter struggle. In the West, a long struggle was just winding down, 
as Trajan declared victory in his Dacian Wars. The territory of Dacia, just north of Greece and Macedonia, had finally been annexed as a new Roman province, and the coffers of the empire were bursting with Dacian gold. The windfall would be spent on a new set of monuments, a forum, a market, and a column recording Trajan's victories. But even then, plenty remained to fuel imperial ambitions. Despite early impressions, the Flavians had largely focused on frontier defense. The main exception had been an aggressive push into northern Britannia, finally halted by the furious resistance of the Caledonians. But Domitian's murder and succession by the elderly and unpopular Nerva had brought a new ruling dynasty to power. Like the Julio-Claudians, the new dynasty saw adoption as the key to continuity. But unlike the Julio-Claudians, the Antonines were happy to adopt from outside the immediate family. Pressed to the wall by the Praetorian Guard, Nerva had offered to adopt the most popular soldier in the empire. His choice was a former legionary tribune in Syria, general of the Rhine legions, and consul of Rome named Marcus Ulpius Traianus. With Trajan in the on-deck circle, the Praetorians had backed off and granted the aged Nerva a final few months in power. By early 98 AD, Nerva was dead, and the 45-year-old Trajan was emperor. Experienced, energetic, and popular, he'd wasted no time setting the tone for his reign, invading the allied client kingdom of Dacia in 101 AD. With the Dacian Wars now ended, it was reasonable to ponder whether an expansionist Rome might turn its gaze east. Not that such thoughts would unduly trouble Silas. After all, it had been nearly a century and a half since Parthian forces had crossed the Euphrates. If Rome and Parthia once again came to blows, the theater of conflict would be far from Emesa. Which was just as well, since, though he'd never been king, Silas still considered Emesa his family's responsibility. Over the decades since the death of Silas's young father, Emesa on the Orontes had continued to thrive. Though stripped of its role as royal capital, the city had found new life as a pilgrimage site. In fact, it was Herod the Great who'd shown the way. Since Judea had never had an abundance of natural resources, Herod had renovated and promoted the Jewish temple as his primary revenue stream. He knew that the temple could draw huge donations from the Jewish diaspora of both Parthia and Rome. In fact, he'd mainly used temple donations to fund his many building projects. Under the high priesthood of Silas, the temples of Elagabal had become a central focus, replacing the lost revenue from the Roman takeover of trade. The strategy had been successful, and lavish donations from the east and west flowed into the sun temples of Emesa and Heliopolis. Combined with the proceeds from local agriculture, the donations helped ensure both the region's prosperity and Emesa's enduring prominence. The arrangement was fairly novel. 
pilgrims traveling great distances to worship their god by doing homage to a black stone under protection of an Arab tribe. But Silas hoped the pilgrimages would remain a fixture throughout the lives of his children. Yes, through his marriage to a Syrian noblewoman, Silas had been blessed with three young sons, the eldest of whom, Longinus, was slated to succeed him as high priest. The younger two, Julius Agrippa and Gaius Julius Sohamus, would be free to pursue careers befitting their family's noble status. The following year, 107 AD, Silas learned matter-of-factly that Nabatea had been annexed by Rome. The proximate cause was the untimely death of the young Nabataean king, Rebel II. Just like with Emesa, there was a ready heir, in the form of Rebel's son, Obodas. But also like with Emesa, Obodas's succession didn't mesh with Roman plans. Like the jaws of some great beast closing on its prey, Roman legions entered Nabatea from Syria and Egypt. No resistance was offered, and the kingdom quickly fell under Roman control. It was soon provincialized, renamed Arabia Petraea, and put under the authority of a Roman governor. While the major city of Petra retained its name, the capital of Bostra was renamed Bostra Traiana Nova after Trajan. Nabataean territories were vast and included the southern Levant, the Sinai Peninsula, and northwest Arabia, and also connected the coastal dots between Roman Judea and Egypt. While most of the land was inhospitable desert, it still held immense value. Both Petra and Bostra lay at the junctions of major trade routes, reaching deep into the east and south, and connecting Syria and the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. Roman priorities became clear when legionaries began construction of a major new road. The road, which followed an old caravan route, ran from Bostra in the north, through Petra, and down to the Red Sea port of Isla. It was named the Via Traiana Nova in honor of Trajan. Since Arab tribes had never presented a serious threat to the empire, the annexation of Nabatea, again like Emesa, was mainly about filling Roman coffers with the profits from regional trade. Protecting their revenues did require some initial investment, in this case establishing a new Red Sea fleet and building a series of forts along the road. In a cost-saving measure, the forts would be manned by the Nabataean army, now placed under Roman control. Smooth, seamless, and hyper-efficient, whether it was Emesa under Vespasian, the Judean Tetrarchy under Domitian, or Nabatea under Trajan, the Romans had annexation down to a science. And, to be honest, there were advantages to letting Rome handle administration and defense, at least if you weren't too hung up on personal liberty and had access to a steady stream of temple income. But then Silas's bread and butter was traditional religion, in his case worshipping a 3,000-year-old Sumerian sun god in the form of a conical black stone. 
It wasn't frowned upon and taxed like Judaism in the wake of the revolt, and it had even less in common with the perplexing new religion of the Christians. Still, for a high priest like Silas, it may have been intriguing to watch a new faith take root and grow practically before his eyes. In a very real sense, Christianity had been reborn in the fires of Jerusalem's destruction. Up until that moment, Jerusalem's Christian community had exercised ultimate authority over the popular Jewish cult. After the death of James the Just, the community had been led by a cousin of Jesus named Simeon ben Clopas, at least through 66 AD. All the while, they'd obeyed Jewish law, followed Jewish tradition, and remained firm in their convictions that, one, Jesus had been the Jewish Messiah, and, two, that he'd risen from the dead. Other Christian communities were bound to follow their guidance in all matters concerning the new faith. When the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, its Christian community fell with it. Not only did this weaken physical ties to the living Jesus, his family members, followers, and the setting of his death, but it allowed other Christian communities to more freely interpret his message. The main form this took was de-emphasizing his radicalism and links to Jewish zealotry, and recasting Jesus as a pacifist and moral teacher whose kingdom was not of this world. To an empire still fuming over the Jewish revolt, it was obviously a more appealing message. It was equally important that, in the wake of Jerusalem's fall, the larger Roman world had become the target for conversion. Under the influence of church leaders in Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, and other major cities, Christianity was unmoored from its Jewish roots and rebranded, after Paul's example, as a universal faith. Possibly the trickiest hurdle to gaining widespread acceptance was minimizing Roman blame for the crucifixion of Jesus. It'd take a slow process, over a series of Gospels, to recast Pontius Pilate from a callous instrument of empire into a sympathetic figure browbeaten by Jewish priests. In this pre-Gospel period, Christian beliefs were largely based on the writings of early church fathers. Paul of Tarsus was the most influential. But letters were also circulated by Clement of Rome, Polycarp of Smyrna, and Ignatius of Antioch. Initiation through baptism held a central role, as did the rite of the Eucharist, or reenacting the Last Supper. A rudimentary church hierarchy had also been established, with leaders of Christian communities known as bishops. The same year as Nabatea's annexation, 107 AD, one of these bishops had been summoned to his death. Silas had likely never met Ignatius of Antioch or been familiar with any of his writings, but a local religious leader being condemned to death by Rome might have prompted Silas to prick up his ears. As a young man, Ignatius Theophoros, or God-bearing, had been a disciple of the Apostle John. 
In 67 AD, he'd become the third bishop of Antioch, succeeding the apostle Peter and pagan convert Devotius. It's not clear why, but after serving 40 years, he somehow ran afoul of the Roman authorities. We know from correspondence between Trajan and Pliny the Younger that being an unrepentant Christian was grounds for execution. Whatever the circumstances, Ignatius had been ordered to Rome to stand trial for his faith. While traveling to the capital, in the company of Roman soldiers, he wrote six letters to eastern churches and one to Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna. In his letters, he stressed the divinity of Jesus, the value of the Eucharist, and, most interestingly, used the Greek word Catholicos to describe the universal Christian church. Predicting his fate, Ignatius addressed one of his letters to the Romans, writing, That I am dying willingly for God's sake, if only you do not prevent it. I beg you, Allow me to be eaten by the beasts, which are my way of reaching to God. I am God's wheat, and I am to be ground by the teeth of wild beasts, so that I may become the pure bread of Christ. So, yeah, pretty tough old dude, and I think it's safe to check the box for unrepentant. The following year, Ignatius would indeed meet his fate torn apart by animals in the Colosseum. In 109 AD came a far more prominent death. After ruling Armenia for the better part of 55 years, King Tiridates I had finally died. His recent reign had been occupied with war against Caucasian Iberia, and he'd apparently passed away with no direct heir. But running Armenia was still a family business, and the senior family member, King Osiris of Parthia, placed a royal relative named Sanatruk on the Armenian throne. When Sanatruk died the following year, Osiris replaced him with his nephew, a son of Pecorus II named Oxidaris. Ever since the days of Nero, there'd been an understanding that Armenian kings could be nominated by Parthia, but always subject to Rome's approval. For some reason, bad advice or horrific personal judgment, Osiris didn't bother running either choice by Trajan. Trajan, who just annexed Nabatea without breaking a sweat, Trajan, who'd recently wrapped up a successful and lucrative Western campaign. Trajan, the soldier emperor, who was always on the lookout for his next potential target. Trajan, who, hearing of Osiris's actions, likely responded with a satisfied smile. Not that he had any issue with Oxidaris per se, any more than Nero'd had with Tiridates. But, you know, Roman honor and all that. And soon the East began to hum with Roman preparations. There's a dearth of detailed sources. We're basically down to Cassius Dio, but Trajan certainly had plenty of forces at his disposal. 
In the East alone, there were legions based in Alexandria and Egypt, Melitene and Satala and Cappadocia, Raphana and Jerusalem and Judea, and Zugma and Samosata on the Euphrates, along with at least one additional Eastern legion. And again, that doesn't count any Western forces Trajan may have felt comfortable bringing along. So we're talking around ten legions with auxiliaries. While traveling east through Athens in 114 AD, Trajan received his first Parthian embassy. The emissaries told him that King Osrois of Parthia had deposed Oxidares as king of Armenia, wanted to replace him with Oxidares' brother Parthomasiris, and would be extremely grateful if Trajan would give Rome's blessing on his nomination. All things considered, it was a reasonable stab at making things right, but too little and very much too late. The emperor refused the embassy's gifts and sent it away with a cryptic response, that when he reached Syria, Trajan would do what was proper. In Antioch later that year came his second royal embassy. This time it was from King Abgar VII of Osroene. To jog your memory, the kingdom of Osroene lay between the Tigris and Euphrates and had been founded by Nabataeans. From their capital at Edessa, Osroene kings defined themselves in two main ways, by always naming themselves either Abgar or Manu, and by doing whatever they could to stay out of regional conflicts. And while Nero and Corbulo had let this attitude slide, Trajan was an entirely different animal. Sensing this, Abgar sent word that he'd be happy to support the Romans. Around the same time, Trajan also accepted gifts from the kings of Caucasian Iberia and Albania, confirming their status as loyal Roman clients. From Antioch, Trajan headed north through the cities of Arsamosata and Satala, where he received additional gifts from the king of two Colchian tribes. Crossing into Armenia, Trajan camped at Elegea on the upper Euphrates. And it was here that the Parthian prince and would-be Armenian king Parthomasiris came to meet the Roman emperor. Intimately familiar with the legend of Nero and Tiridates, the prince took off his diadem, set it down before Trajan, and stepped back full of expectation. His frazzled nerves were likely shattered when Roman troops loudly hailed their general as imperator. In their eyes, he just defeated the Armenian king without a single blow. Given a chance to speak, but not, you know, his crown back, Parthomasiris boldly asked for the granting of his kingdom. Trajan responded matter-of-factly that Armenia was already Roman territory. The fact that its kings required Rome's approval made this abundantly clear and it might as well have a Roman governor. Parthomasiris was welcome to go wherever he wanted, only without the soldiers he'd brought, since, again, they were already Roman subjects. Leaving Parthomasiris impotent, fuming, and under Roman escort, Trajan led his forces south to Edessa. 
There he finally met face to face with King Abgar VII and compelled Osrowini to become a Roman protectorate. Around this same time, Trajan was also contacted by King Manisaurus of the Armenian client kingdom of Corduini. A reluctant vassal, Manisaurus had been busy expanding his kingdom at the expense of both Armenia and Parthia. Learning that the Parthian king Osrois had finally declared war against him, Manisaurus had offered to put his kingdom under Rome's protection. Trajan accepted and instantly gained a new Roman territory on the borders of both Armenia and Parthia. If restoring Roman hegemony over Armenia was Trajan's intention, well, mission accomplished. So, back to Rome for a nice Armenian triumph? I think you're all way ahead of me. Just south of Corduini lay the Parthian client kingdom of Adiabene, with its capital at Nisibis. As you may recall, Adiabene had sent support to the zealots fighting the Romans in Judea. Their current king, Meiraspes, proved to be of the same stripe when he offered protection to local princes opposing Rome. As his next logical step, Trajan sent Roman forces into Adiabene. Said forces were commanded by an interesting figure named Lucius Coietus. Coietus had been prince of a Mori tribe who'd fought for the Romans in the rebellion following King Ptolemy's murder. In return, his family had been granted Roman citizenship, and young Lucius had advanced as an auxiliary officer in the Roman cavalry. Under Domitian, he'd been granted equestrian status and dismissed for insubordination. Reinstated under Trajan, Coetus had distinguished himself in the Dacian Wars, been elevated to senator, and remained close by the emperor's side. Coetus entered Adiabene from Armenia and marched on the city of Singara on the west bank of the Tigris. But the city's ruler, an Arab phylarch named Manus, had already fled to Nisibis, and Coetus took the city without a fight. Then, moving northwest, the general led Roman forces against the Adiabene capital. Like many cities of the region, Nisibis was steeped in ancient history. After three centuries as a Neo-Assyrian provincial capital, it had fallen to the Chaldeans and then the Persians. Alexander the Great had also taken the city on his way to victory at Gogamila. And in 114 AD, it was the Romans' turn, as Coetus and his legionaries captured the city. Though much of Adiabene lay east of the Tigris, and safe for the moment from Roman invasion, the fall of Nisibis was critical. For the first time, Rome had possession of a major Parthian city on the far side of the Euphrates. In parallel out west, Trajan had captured the rebellious city of Batane, whose Arab phylarch Sparasis had also fled to Adiabene. With these twin victories, Rome's dominion now extended to the southern borders of Osrowini and east to the Tigris. To commemorate the news, the Roman Senate sent word that Trajan had been granted the title of Parthicus, or Conqueror of the Parthians. 
If the title felt a bit premature, the Emperor was confident that before he left the region, he'd have earned it.